0: morning. Glad to be with you. My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, I love getting to meet new people. So if you're new here and you haven't met me yet, would you do me a great big favor? And when I'm in the foyer sometime, would you just uh, grab me, tell me who you are, tell me a bit about your story? I'd love to get to know you a bit better. For those of you who are joining us online, we're really excited that you're with us this morning and uh, a great big hello from all of us. We're glad that you have Joined us as our online church family. Well, let me read to you, let me read you a few verses. Let me read this to you this morning. Revelation 22 and 12. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what? they have done. Today, I want to talk about three things God has revealed to us about what He has prepared for us. And they're found in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Last week, I I shared how there's two sort of mega shifts in the Bible. The first one's found in Genesis chapter 3. So just you finish two chapters where Adam and Eve are living in this wonderful beautiful Garden of Eden life and and have a great relationship with God and then they sin and rebel against God and they turn and their own way and all of humanity and all of creation is, is subjected to um, futility and decline and uh, corruption and there's a curse and uh, so then the rest of the Bible is in that scenario Jesus comes of course and that's a, that's the game changer. But then it's at the, there's another mega shift at the end of the Bible, and that's between Revelation 20 and 21. And we'll be reading into that this morning. And that's the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, there's three in Revelation 21 and 22, and I encourage you to read them on your own, but we're going to go into some of the verses here this morning. There's Three things in here that God has revealed to us. I mean, there's more reveals than just three, but there's three I want to talk about this morning. That God has revealed to us about what He has prepared for us. And the first one, I already read it to you. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. The first reveal is that I want to share with you is his rewards. The rewards of God. In Matthew 19, 28 to 29, the disciples were chatting with Jesus and Peter asks him a question about the sacrifices they've made for Jesus, in serving Jesus. And he says this, We have left everything to follow you. And what then will there be for us? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the renewal of all things, which is is Revelation 21 and 22, the renewal of all things, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So the first thing I want to say is, when he says, those who have left, uh, another word you could use in there is those who have lost those who have lost. Uh, so, what does God promise to those who have left behind things in following him and lost things in following him? Well, his promise is that the renew of all things, he will repay us or reward us a hundred times as much. You say, well, eternal life with Christ would be a hundred times as much, but that's not what he's talking about, because... You will receive a hundred times as much, and you will inherit eternal life. Those are two distinct things. So, hundred times as much. Can you get, can anyone get their head around that? No, I don't think it's a precise calculation that you do with your calculator. Oh, I lost this field, so God will give me 100 fields. Exactly the same. No, I, I think it's showing you the generosity of God in his willingness to reward people. Here's another verse, Matthew 16, 27, against Jesus. He said, the Son of Man, that's talking about himself, is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. He's going to reward each person according to what they have done. You know, Jesus talked a lot about rewards, especially in the book of Matthew. Um, Jesus talked about you, you get a reward, If you give a cup of cold water to somebody in His name. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about rewards repetitively. He talks about when you give in secret, your Father will see what you've done in secret and will reward you. When you pray in secret, your Father will see what you've done in secret and will reward you. When you fast in secret, your Father will see what you've done in secret and will reward you. Reward, reward. Reward. So, my dad, my dad noticed this a few years ago, quite a quite a number of years ago, and uh, I remember he said to us kids in family debate time. I mean, family devotion time. Anyhow, (laughs) often turned into a debate time with us. He said this. He says, "I think we're supposed to be motivated by the rewards that God promises in the New Testament." And I remember recoiling from this. I remember I had a spiritual answer for this. This is what I said. I said, no, you're supposed to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Not because you're going to get a reward. I mean, when we get to heaven, sinners like us, the Atkins family, we'll just be lucky to be there. That will be reward enough. The only problem is I kept running into people who agreed with my dad on this like the Apostle Paul. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. That's a pretty good sentiment, but that's only half the sentence. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Not you too, Paul. Reward as a motivation? (sighs) Ah. Ephesians 6, 7 to 8, this is still the Apostle Paul. He says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. Whatever good they do? Really? I mean, that could include thousands of things in the course of a lifetime. Every time I return good for evil, every time I serve someone who could never repay me, every small kindness as small as a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, every time I pray in secret or fast in secret or give in secret. Every time, whatever good we do, he will reward. It seems too much. The other thing is our suffering seems to be rewarded. I don't have time to go into all the scriptures on this, but obviously there's many scriptures that talk about when we suffer persecution, great is our reward in heaven. When we suffer Serving others Jesus told about you know when you're throwing a banquet don't just invite the people who can pay you back invite the people who can Never pay you back And God will pay you back And It's like uh, we just almost want to delete that last sentence off of it What about here's one that I discovered this week and shocked me when I discovered it What about when my body wastes away? 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. That's your body. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not, what is, not on what is seen, but what is, on, what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I was reading John Piper's commentary on this, and he makes the claim that this is not talking about persecution, but is simply talking about aging or, a debil- or having a debilitating illness or the weakness that's caused by disability. He says that no Christian suffering is pointless, that God will reward the Christian sufferer according to their suffering. And I was re- when I read that, I was like, no, this seems too good to be true. Is God really going to reward this much? And then I thought, maybe my dad was right. Here's John Eldridge, his comments on rewards. He says, oh yes, rewards will be, will be given out in the kingdom with great honor and ceremony. And I believe one of our greatest joys will be to witness it happen. When you think of all the stories of the saints through the ages, all the beautiful, heroic, painful, utterly sacrificial choices made by those saints, the suffering, the persecution, the persecution, how we will enjoy hearing the stories of those that ought to be rewarded and then watch breathlessly as our king meets the specific situation with perfect generosity. I think John Eldredge is trying to tell us that we're going to rejoice in the rewards that God gives to others and the way God generously gives them to others. Have you ever watched a reward show and they gave the reward to the wrong people? Now, sometimes that's just your subjective view. Like, that's not the Oscar movie of the year. That's not the gra- Clearly, that's not the rap artist of the year in the Grammy Awards. You know, clearly, they got that wrong. But then there's other times where it's absolutely clear they got it wrong. I don't know if how many of you remember when Steve Harvey read the Miss Universe pageant and he, he read that the winner was Miss Columbia and then two minutes later he got up and said, I'm so embarrassed, I read the card wrong. They'd already crowned her. And then they said, it's actually Miss Philippines and they had to like take away the crown from the woman they'd already crowned. That's not going to happen in heaven. There's going to be... No wrong rewards. You know, have you ever been, here's one maybe we can relate to. Have you ever been there and there's been some honor or reward or uh, award being given and you're sitting there and you're like, man, I would really like that. And you notice there's a little bit of envy in you. Or, or you feel like I deserve it more than they do. I can't believe they're getting this honor or this recognition or this reward. There's not going to be any of that in heaven. And why do I say that those things won't be in heaven? Well, one, God is about giving the awards to the wrong people or, or awarding, you know, wrongly. Because God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows uh, every detail about every life scenario. So he'll be the perfect award giver. And then the second thing is, when we, are, if, if we're in the new heaven and the new earth, or if we're in heaven, we will experience. We will be changed. We won't be living with envy nagging at us or self centeredness bothering us or, or any of those things. We're going to recognize that God has done everything perfectly in giving rewards and we're going to rejoice. We're gonna, not going to be sad or mad about it. We're going to rejoice because our struggle with envy or our struggle with our own self centeredness will be over before that. We'll rejoice in the rewards that God gives to others. Here's C.S. Lewis on the topic of rewards. and You know, it's funny. I've read this several times, this quote, and even read it in this series, but didn't really recognize it was talking about rewards. Funny. In fact, a lot of people who quote C.S. Lewis on this quote, they cut off the first sentence because it's talking about rewards. If we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature, like the staggering nature, like... Whatever you've left or whatever you've lost, we'll give, I'll give you back a hundred times as much. That's pretty staggering. If we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I read that quote and I thought, man, how can I strengthen my desire for God's rewards? Well, the first thing is learning more about it. But I was reading Jonathan Edwards uh, about, on this, and he, he, he's a famous Christian who lived in the 1800s. And he wrote 70 resolutions for his life. I'm going to read you two of his resolutions. And uh, they do read like a guy from his era. So it's very old English. Resolved. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I'm going to do whatever I can to obtain as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. In other words, he believed in God's willingness to reward, and he desired to see those things in his life. Here's his other resolution that I'm going to read. Resolved. They all start like that. Never to do anything but duty. And then, according to Ephesians 6, 6-8, Do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good thing any man doth, the same shall he receive of the Lord. So he made lots of resolutions about his life, but these were just really about, I have read scripture, it says God will reward in the life to come, and it's not just eternal life, but it's more than that. And I want those things. I want to be motivated by those things. My kids' school, they give out tons of awards at the end of the year. Sports, arts, good attitude, showing potential, a rising star. There's loads of re- rewards. I like going to that uh, the award uh, ceremony that they do. It's a big celebration. Many kids get awards. And I find it fascinating because... I mean, I don't know a lot of the kids, but just I read their body language, right? So you'll have a teacher say, and uh, this award goes to, you know, Billy Smith or whatever. And you'll see this kid sort of come up there and he's like, oh yeah, shout out to my peeps, you know, I got the, you know, he's all excited and, and he's just, you know, look at me, I got the award. And then he's like, hey, teacher, let's Snapchat, you know. And it's just like, I'm sitting there and going, hmm, I don't know if I, it would be easy for me to have given that kid that award. So it makes me think that that teacher must be a pretty good teacher. You know, maybe at the beginning of the year when he was all thug life in her classroom, he was thinking, she was thinking, I'm not giving this kid any reward. I just hope to survive this kid this year. But then she did what I think a lot of teachers do do. She thought, what is the good in this kid that I could point out to this kid that would help point them in the right direction? How could I find something, just something that I could reward, and then they'd be incentivized towards a good course in life? And so I'm sitting there and going, this is a bit of a a miracle that happened here. That kid got that reward from that teacher, and I think that teacher had to probably do a bit of a gut check and heart check to do it, but good for them, good for them. You know, I think about again, back to my attitude at the beginning when my dad first brought this up years ago. It's like, if we get eternal life, which we don't deserve, and scripture makes it clear that we do not deserve it. It's a gift of God that he gives. Our sins deserve separation from God for all eternity. That's what we deserve. And I knew that as a young man, and so that's why I was recoiling and saying, well, we don't deserve eternal life. That's absolutely true. And so it seemed to me that for God to give us anything more, like it seemed to me like if I was in heaven, if God leaned over and said, hey, you're lucky to be here, I'd be like, yeah, I know. And yet I find that God, who not only gives us what we don't deserve, the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with him, is also eager to give out rewards in heaven. And it seems like, again and again, the the emphasis in the New Testament is that should motivate us. Now, I think it's hard to get our heads around it, and I'm still getting my head around it, to be honest, because I was very resistant to this idea for many, many years. But just in this study of studying about heaven, I couldn't get away from it. I think rewards are mainly about faith. There's an element of you trusted God, and so you did these things, and that's what it requires. Right? There's a lot of, again, that whole teaching where in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, the stuff you do in secret. You do in secret. In other words, nobody sees it. You get no street cred. You get no reward here on earth for doing it. And it may be something you have to do again and again and again. You have to forgive someone again and again. You have to, you have to be patient with somebody. You have to be compassionate towards somebody. And it's, it's difficult And so, I can see why some people say, well, I didn't want to do that. And Jesus says, you know what? I see it all. I see it all. And someday I'm going to tell your story rightly. I'm going to tell the parts of the story that nobody knew, the hidden parts. And I'm going to reward the good stuff. I'm going to reward what you've done. And just... You know, the thought of Jesus' perfect rewarding. Have you ever been in a reward thing where it's your friend up there or somebody you knew and you just thought, oh, this is so right, they so deserve this, I'm so glad they're being recognized? I think we'll have that experience again and again and again. And ultimately, all of these things will come around to give glory to God. See, people did things in faith They prayed, they fasted, they gave, they sacrificed when there was no reward here on earth because they believed that God was the ultimate rewarder of his followers. So that's the first reveal is his rewards, his rewards. Here's the second reveal, his city, his city. What's the most beautiful city you've ever been to? You ever stepped off a plane or, or, or drove around a corner and suddenly you saw, wow, what an amazing city. Uh, in 2008, I was on my way to Africa and I had six hours in the Paris airport and convinced a couple of people I didn't know very much to join me in going into the city to see if we could see the Louvre and uh, Notre Dame Cathedral. And it's the city of lights. It's the city of love, Paris, Right? That's not what I felt. <laughs> That's not what I felt when I was riding on the metro when I went in. Because when you're riding on the metro from the airport into the city, you go through this industrial district that is gritty and grimy, and there's graffiti everywhere. And you feel like, you know what? If the metro stopped here, I would not get off. Maybe for my own safety, I would not get off. And that's how it is with all our human cities, right? You know, they can always be better, right? You know, imagine New York without the traffic, or L.A. without the smog, or Moose Jaw without the <laughs> potholes, a chorus of potholes, right? There. I wondered what would happen when I did that. You know, I've actually noticed they've started to fill a bunch of the ones I've been dodging for a while. They've started to fill them in, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Thank you, city workers, for, for making it easier to drive. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, the second big reveal is his city. Revelation uh, 21, 9 to 11 says, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was that of a very precious jewel, like like a jasper, clear as crystal. So it gleams like this city gleams like a jewel. It's not a dirty city, it's not gritty or grimy like the trip into Paris. It gleams like a jewel, and it's gorgeous like a bride. And you think about the bride, the last wedding I performed, um, it was really neat because uh, the plan was that, um, so the bride was off in one area, and her two kids were going to be part of the groomsmen. They were quite young. And so the plan was, though, that they were going to get a special privilege, and the special privilege was before the whole ceremony began, at the last second, they were going to get a chance to go visit mom and see her in her wedding dress. And the groomsmen didn't get to do that, and the groom obviously didn't get to do that, and, and the whole place, we had to wait our turn for the reveal of the bride, but they got a sneak peek. And so John's getting a bit of a sneak peek of what all of creation is waiting for. The revelation of the New Jerusalem. Now, New Jerusalem is interesting because in Revelation 21 1 to 5, it tells us a little bit different shades, same idea, but a little different. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. This is the excitement about the, the the new Jerusalem. This is the excitement of heaven and earth coming together. It's where heaven is where God dwells, earth is where we dwell, and they're coming together. So God will dwell among His people. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. I love how personal that is. I'm shocked by how personal it is, actually. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So God's dwelling among the people means comfort for, for people, means the end of the old order, and the old order had, was, was punctuated with death and mourning and crying and pain. And he's making everything new. He's making everything new. You know, I was, I was reading, a, I'll read a couple of verses from the next chapter, 22, and the first couple of verses. It says, Then the angel showed me the, the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be any more curse. Okay, who knows the answer to this one? Which U.S. city is known as the Emerald City? What? What? I think, I think you... Yeah. Seattle. Seattle's the right answer. Good. Ron, you get 1,000 church points. I'm not sure what they're good for, but you get them. Seattle. You say, why is it called the Emerald City? Like, Emerald City, isn't that something in, like, uh, The Wizard of Oz? Right? It seems strange. Why is it called the Emerald City? It's called... What's that? Because there's a wizard there. (laughs) Yeah, Bill Gates is somewhat of a wizard, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. It's called the Emerald City because of how much greenery there is in it. Because of the trees. It's green all year round in Seattle. Like, lots of moisture you know, the driest part of the year is the summer, but throughout the winter, gets lots of rain, and there's lots of evergreen trees, so it's, they call it the Emerald City. And um, it's interesting when you, you read more about the, how the, this New Jerusalem, you talk about how it's, it's, uh, the walls and stuff are made out of jasper. I looked into that, and I, and I found out it's actually more like Emerald, the Emerald City. Because the old way, when people would describe a jasper in ancient times, they were usually talking about something that was translucent and green. Whereas a jasper could be red or different other colors and is opaque. But this, you know, I thought, it's cool. This is the Emerald City. I wonder if that's where the Wizard of Oz creators got this idea for the Emerald City there. But anyhow, it's an Emerald City because of all the nature. And this is what we find about this, this city. It's not... Some sort of industrial complex, or that just something that occasionally has a park space. It is a coming together of um, God's beautiful nature and the best in what we have in cities. So it's a it's a garden city. It's a nature city. That's where we have rivers and and uh, fruit uh, fruit trees and uh, and uh, water clear as, clear as crystal. It sounds actually quite beautiful. But the feature that really stood out to me was the one I read at the very end. It says, no longer will there be any curse. No longer any curse. So no more curse is good news because it means no more disability or disease or decline in us, but also in creation. It also means no more struggle with sin in us. Think about that. No more struggle with sin in us. Like they say, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And that sounds incredible to me, and I don't know all of what it means, but what I want to be healed is my struggle with sin. That's what I want. I want that to be healed in me. My selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, my struggle with sin. So just imagine, you know those things where you keep tripping up, where you struggle, imagine that you're healed of that struggle. Imagine that. Imagine that. I try, I try to get my head around it I just th- to think about that, and I thought, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Like, I mean, my wife would find that amazing. If I'm not struggling with the same things over and over again, if I'm not, you know, oh, my Imagine being healed. No more curse. No more curse. You know, when I looked at no more curse, I thought, wait, 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 wait. No more curse. Isn't there a Christmas song about that? There is. Joy to the world. I want to read you the lyrics to Joy to the World. And I I was, this is again, this is another one of this week's revelations out of studying Revelation. I was like shocked when I read Joy to the World again. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. It's a Christmas song, right? So when Jesus came the first time, did the earth receive her king? No. Even the Israelites rejected Jesus as king. Did every heart prepare him room? Well, many hearts did, and throughout history, many, many more hearts have. But no, not every heart has prepared him room. And is heaven and nature singing? Well, actually, Romans 8 tells us heaven and nature are groaning. Well, nature earth is for sure is groaning. Under the weight of sin and the curse. So that, okay. Second verse. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. This is very similar to the first in its messaging. And it, again, focuses on him being the king. But is he reigning? Is all of creation under his reign? Is the earth under his reign? Not fully. Not fully. He is the king. He is the king of all. But it's not under his reign. Verse 3, no more let sins and sorrows grow. Is that still happening? Yes, that's still happening. Watch the news. Sins and sorrows are growing nor thorns infest the ground. I don't know about thorns, but dandelions are infesting my lawn, so I think that the curse has not gone away. Anyhow, he comes to make his blessings flow, and get this, far as the curse is found. That's the scope of his victory over sin and death and the curse. And we haven't realized that all yet. I mean, he's won that victory. It hasn't been applied in every, to all of creation and, 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 to every, and to everything. He hasn't made everything new yet. But that's the scope of his victory. For as the curse is found, he will undo the curse. Everything that has been cursed, he is going to make new. He's going to renew. For as the curse is found. It's the full scope of his redemption. Here's the last verse. He rules the world with truth and grace. Has this happened yet? No, but he will. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the nations coming into this new Jerusalem and bringing the, their splendor into there. They're bringing their glory into there. But they're, it's all meant to glorify God the things that before they would have looked at as things to draw, to, uh, draw attention to themselves and to be arrogant with and to be pride, proud with, now those things are used to glorify God. So I got done reading this song, and I was like, this song is about the second coming, not the first. This is a description of the second coming. When Isaac Watts wrote this song, he was not thinking Only about the first coming now you can't have the second coming without the first coming you can't have all these things happen if Jesus didn't go to the cross and win a decisive victory over sin in the grave and death but this is a song about the second coming you know I've been I've been talking with some of the other pastors on staff I said you know what you know how Christmas season we sometimes will take time to sort of you know on the Christian calendar is called Advent right and we often think about being What it would have been like waiting for Jesus the Messiah to show up in Israel and to bring hope and to bring salvation and all that stuff. And and as we were talking about, they were saying, you know what? We're in a very similar situation again, except for we're waiting for the second coming, not the first coming. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. And what better season to actually celebrate that than in the season of Advent? In fact, I think that's sort of the part of, that's maybe the point of Advent in some ways. Is that we, yes, we recall waiting for Jesus the first time, but we are waiting for Jesus the second time. So I didn't cover everything I wanted to cover in this series, so i just throw this out. Ask me in November, but I think about November and December, I might throw a few three weeks into our schedule where we just give more attention to the second coming. Because that's what we're waiting for. And we don't want to be people who are asleep and not in the right position when we're waiting for the second coming. So here's the city. No more curse. It's a beautiful garden city. It's, it's the place where man and God are together. But some details about the city tell us more about the third reveal. And the third reveal is the revelation. Let me read it for you, and then I'll tell you. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They will, they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The last revelation is his face. Now it's interesting. in Revelation it says there's no temple there. And the temple was always a sign to the Old Testament Israelites of God's intention. God wanted to be among his people. He wanted to be with his people. He wanted to dwell among them. But because of human sin, human sin and God's holiness, they do not, they cannot, not compatible. And so God's holy presence would dwell in in the temple or the tabernacle. So it was an indication that God wanted to be right in the middle of his people But it was also an indication that human sin had had erected a barrier, a separation between God and man. So we're always reminded about this. God wants to be with us. Our sin has separated us from God. Those things were always potently there in the temple. But the temple's not there in the new heaven and new earth. Because Jesus has dealt with our sin problem on the cross. And those who trust in what he has done how he's sacrificially died for us to be, uh, for the penalty of sin to be removed from our lives, they will be in the new heaven and the new earth, and they don't need a temple barrier between them. It says they will see his face. In the Old Testament, seeing Jesus, God's face was a no-go zone. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, asked to see it, and God said, I'm going to hide you in a rock, I'm going to cover with you with my hand, and you'll get to see my back. And when he came out of that experience, his face shone. The second hand shining was so much on his face, people couldn't even look at him. He had to wear a veil. That's how potent the glory of God was. Isaiah has, a, has a, a vision of the Lord, and he falls down in abject terror because he is an unclean. He says, "I am an unclean person. Woe is me! Basically, I am going to die because my sin and God's holiness are totally incompatible." Throughout the Old Testament, people would have visitations of angels and they would go, I'm dead because of my sin. I can't be in this. I can't be where God is. I can't dwell with God. There has to be a barrier. The Old Testament high priest, they put bells on his garment and tradition says they would also attach a rope to his leg for the once-a-year trip into the Holy of Holies. Once a year. Only the high priest could go in. It happened once a year. And if he, and the thing was, what if he goes in there and we hear the bells ringing, and then we stop hearing the bells ringing, like what if he dies in there? Nobody's going in there after him, because we can't be in the presence of God because of our sin. So they tie a rope around his ankle. And if the bells stop ringing long enough, they start tugging on the rope to pull him back out. And that was the intention. I don't know if it ever happened exactly like that. It was all the recognition that our sin has separated us from God again and again and again. So here you have the new, new Jerusalem. There's no temple. Because God is his temple. Paul in Philippians, he said, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face. To see God face to face. The thing that was a no-go zone for all of human history from genesis 3 since the mega shift of the fall happened and the curse began will be undone and we will see him face to face and we'll have the capacity because we'll have fully renewed sinless bodies we will be made righteous through the power of the holy spirit sin will not be a barrier between us and him Randy Elcorn, in his book Heaven says this, not only will we see his face and live, but we will likely wonder if we ever lived before we saw his face. To see God will be our greatest joy, the joy by which all others will be measured. Let me read you one last scripture here this morning. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, the old you, the old sinful, separated from God, you, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Wow. When Christ, who is your life, some people have asked me if I'm going to deal with, are we married in heaven? <laughs> I'll try to give you my short answer today. The day Marnie and I got uh, married, it was like the reception was sort of coming to a close, and it was our chance to get up and thank people. And we did. We thanked all the people who had helped us make that day special. And then I just took some time to talk about the reality of our relationship I said that Marnie and I were, we were not each other's first loves. That before we met each other, each of us met another. We met Jesus. And that he was always going to be the first love in our lives. I mean, it's commanded in Scripture, but it's, it's not just a command that, oh, you drudgingly try, got to fulfill. It's like, it's the great joy of your life to know Christ. And so we just wanted all of our guests who were celebrating and, and so excited that we had come together and that we were married and we were excited too, we wanted them to just put it into perspective and say, you know what? Jesus will always be number one. And that's, that's something we're going to share, that we're going to always have Jesus number one in our life because we, we know he's our greatest joy. He's our greatest treasure. He's our greatest love. I mean, the new heaven and the new earth is the place you're made for, but the person you're made for, is Jesus? Now that was a couple of naive kids in love 24 years ago, and now 24 years later, as I'm studying on heaven, I it, it all comes back full circle. Now, will we be married in heaven? I don't think so. I don't say that tritely. I have a good marriage. Some of you who've had a very struggling marriage, or maybe you've been divorced, you may be happy. You're not married in heaven. I mean, I take the scripture. Jesus says in heaven there won't be marriage or giving in marriage. So he says that. I believe that's true. I believe marriage now is a, is a picture of our relationship with God then. So it's not that marriage is a bad thing. God created marriage, but it was meant to be fulfilled in a greater reality. And so I... Now, you say, well, if I wasn't married to my husband or my wife, I would lose my best friend. Listen, you aren't going to lose your best friend. If they're your best friend, I don't think that's going to change. I think it's not like you're going to have a mind wipe and you won't remember all the things you worked hard to do together, the things you did, all the, all the memories, the way you struggled in the trenches together. That's not going away. If anything, the relationship you had with your spouse here on earth is going to be enhanced when you get to heaven. But the reality that we've been living our our whole existence for of man and God together, dwelling together in that intimate relationship, that's what it's all been pointing to. So as good as a marriage could be here on this earth, there's something greater yet to come. And here's the good thing. I I was reading one guy, he said this. He says, let's just say your marriage is your best relationship. And let's say you've had the best marriage in your city, whatever. You've had the best, or at least you believe that you have, right? It's really awesome. He said, you probably can't even think this, but every relationship you'll have in heaven will be greater than that because no more curse and no more sin. So I think you'll still have a relationship with your spouse, but the new reality will be there. I think you still have a relationship with your family, with your kids, or those ones that you really hope that you can, I think those things will continue. We're not, God doesn't erase who we were and create a a whole new person that we aren't. I think our memories will persist, and I think all those things will persist. But there is a greater reality, and that is the reality of being with Christ. Let me read this to you in closing. Heaven is and always will be a world of glory. When God makes all things new, new, the canyons and the mountains, the galaxies and the grasslands of this fallen world will groan no more. These broken bodies will be clothed with immortality. Human society will share in the very harmony of the Trinity. Nevertheless, the hub of all that glory whose name will rest upon our foreheads and whose brightness will shine, will light up the world, will be God himself in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Heaven without Christ is like an ocean without water, the sky without air, and fire without flame. He is heaven's beating heart. What does this mean for our heavenly mindedness? It means that our minds are most full of heaven when they are most full of Christ. As John Owen writes, the whole glory of the state above is expressed by being ever with the Lord, where he is to behold his glory. Our hope is that ere long we shall be ever with him, and if so, it is certainly our wisdom and duty to be here with him now as much as we can. So heavenly mindedness is an invitation to be with Jesus as much as we can now in preparation for the day when we will be with him always. Here's my encouragement for you. Summer's upon us. I know it's short in Saskatchewan. We try to squeeze everything we can out of it, and I think you should. I think this will help you. I encourage you to begin your day with Jesus. Fix your meditations on Jesus retreat through the day to Jesus. Set your mind on things above, because set your minds on things above at its core means set your minds on Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we, we acknowledge our limitation in understanding all that you have prepared for us, and we rejoice in the fact that you have revealed many things about what you have planned for us in your word. So I thank you that you've done that. I thank you that you've given us things that uh, maybe at first puzzle us and maybe sometimes perplex us, but as we see more and more of what your Scripture says, those things, they bring us life and anticipation. And you said that heaven was meant to be an anchor for our souls. There's a lot of things that blow us this way and that, and we need an anchor. We need your your. Uh, the vision of what you have for us to be that anchor in difficult times. Lord, I pray you give us perspective. Give us heavenly perspective. Yeah. Lord, I pray, I, I thank you that there was no one more heavenly minded than you and yet you, you sweat and you served and you denied yourself and you went to the cross and you battled sin, and you won the victory here on earth because you were heavenly-minded. And so we as your followers, we need to. We need to come into that alignment with you. We need to draw on what will be true in the kingdom yet to come that isn't true here. When we say the Lord's Prayer together, we to recognize that you are our Father in heaven, and that we do want your, your kingdom to come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven and as it will be in the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, our prayer would be like trees where our roots would just go into the nutrients of the promises that you have for us for the future, and then we draw that goodness, that, the fruit of, of, um, of what is yet to come, we draw that back into this world here. Help us live here with the values of the life yet to come. We need your help to do this, and we, we praise you because we think that we're not asking for something that's outside of your desires for us, but it's well within what you desire for us to be citizens of heaven and looking forward to our great reward while living here engaged and serving you. So lead us in that, we ask in your name. Can we just...